Hi, I'm Tom Zimmerman from the EMGR podcast. This episode is about where clients with complex trauma tend to get stuck and how we might intervene um, when they are stuck to help them get back on the pathway. There really is so much to say here, and what I'm presenting is a broad overview, almost an outline, and each of these points um, could easily be a chapter in a pretty big and, and exhaustive book. Very little of what I'm saying here broadly is mine. I suppose the metaphors are mine. But it's a collection of ways of seeing that are helpful for me in understanding where clients get stuck in reprocessing, why, and what might be helpful in getting them unstuck. And as important, what we subsequently do with that information. Because when clients encounter difficulties in any phase of EMDR therapy, that isn't a failure, and it isn't evidence that you've done something wrong. It's important information about the client's nervous system and how they survive. That information needs to come so that we can use the lessons in it in the service of the client's recovery. So again, a lot of times new EMDR therapists talk about problems, you know, problems, 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 client can't this, client can't that. What is the information in that difficulty? The information is coming to you as a gift. So this is an episode in large part where we're talking about intervening. And I know that in your basic training, it was probably drilled into you to stay out of the way. But if a client is stuck, and we'll talk about what that means, what that may look like, your obligation as the therapist is to help them get unstuck. So, and I guess I want to, you know, do an 80,000 foot view and just say that EMDR therapy with a client with really complex trauma is a complicated task. And we'll explore some of the reasons why and how you might intervene when somebody is struggling. So if you're coming into this, again, thinking that EMDR is this kind of magic wand and you're going to be able to go up to any client anywhere in the world and just dink, dink, dink them and resolve their traumas largely uneventfully, um, that's not the magic of EMDR. So I have a podcast about that and that the lessons in that are going to come up and come up and come up in this episode. Before we talk about intervening when someone is stuck, we really do need to talk about how you know when someone is stuck, when they have really complex trauma. Um, because sometimes it may be ambiguous. Um, in large part, because clients with complex trauma are often connecting something really big. The information that they're work working on may be very, very big and they're trying to metabolize it into adaptive information that can be very small. What that means is that a client with really complex trauma, the metabolization rate at which they're able to, to absorb this memory may be really slow. Okay, so um, if you're working with someone who has adaptive information, the size of, size of Mount Everest, you can easily connect big chunks of information to that. If you're trying to connect a trauma the size of Mount Everest into adaptive information the size of a walnut, well, first, that isn't possible. 
But second, whatever metabolization that happens is going to go slow. I guess these are some of the questions that I ask when a client tends to be, you know, when a client tends to be stuck, particularly if they're stuck on the body channel. Um, because they may say, it's in my chest, and then the next set, it's in my chest, and then the next set, it's in my, it's in my chest. With a client with really complex trauma, that's ambiguous because we don't have enough information yet to know if it's moving very, very slowly. So we can ask, right? We can say, there's been several rounds where what you've said is that it's in my chest. What I'd like you to do on the next round of noticing is really zoom into that sensation and see if it's changing in any way. Okay, and if it is, notice that. And if it's not, notice that. Good, so we do a round and we check. So is it changing in any way at all? And then another question we may ask that can be very, very, very helpful, particularly if it's on the body sensation channel. We may ask something like, is there anything that you're aware of maybe something you're thinking or some other channel that may account for why that sensation doesn't want to move. Yes, I was thinking that if I wouldn't have picked up the phone, I knew I shouldn't have picked up the phone. I was thinking that if I wouldn't have picked up the phone, this wouldn't have happened to me. Okay, good. Now we have incredibly helpful information because what's likely happening is the client's likely in guilt, shame, blame, responsibility for what was done to him. So we're going to explore that later. But do you see how stuck is an opportunity for more information to come in? So clients won't just get stuck on the body channel. They can be stuck in very high anxiety near panic right, which can be on multiple channels. It can be on the body channel, emotion channel, thought channel that won't shift, right? So the client's getting flooded that way. Clients can be stuck in a shutdown response. And the way I think about that is your, your house probably has a 100 or 200 amp breaker. And a lot of clients, um, clients with complex trauma, they're drawing, their nervous system is drawing a lot of current, right? So sometimes just an air conditioner coming on could kind of cause their main circuit breaker to pull more amperage than the system has identified as a good idea. And the clients may just shut down. Also, parts of the client may shut down the system. Sometimes clients can be stuck in big existential, in the big existential loneliness of childhood, particularly if we're working on an attachment wound. And this is a little bit, um, we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but think about it. It almost is kind of like the, the client is just sinking into quicksand because they're looking around this, this huge childhood, which they don't think is ever going to end. And it is incredibly, horribly lonely. So that feeling can come in. They can, obviously, we can be stuck in trying to figure out something that is existential. You know, why did my mom not know how to love me right? Why does everyone I've ever loved try to hurt me? Um, am I ever going to find love, right? Why did this happen? Um, is there anything I could have done to prevent this 
from happening in the past. So trying to figure out something um, pretty big is bigger than what I'm asking you to do as, as you being the client in EMDR therapy. Or also they can just be stuck in noticing on channels that aren't productive right now. Sometimes certain channels will be productive, sometimes they're not. So what I may mean by that is the client may just be stuck on the thought channel and things aren't moving and shifting and changing. They're just thought, 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 thought. Um, and our sense, and with a little bit of probing, the client's sense is that we've gotten so far away from the memory content. Um, or maybe it's not the thought content. Maybe it's the memory channel. And maybe a client with complex trauma has opened up 47 different memories. And what I can almost guarantee you is that most clients with complex trauma that I've worked with, you open up that much memory content and none of it is going to move. Back to the boat metaphor, we have a limited amount of adaptive information into which we can metabolize only a, as big of information as you have a boat. So does it make sense if you're in a canoe to be hooked on to 47 whales? It probably doesn't. So, so in general, what we're exploring here are different ways that stuck might look and might present. And I do want to define, because Shapiro has, has a word looping, and I want to define what looping is, because I've had some consultees get confused about it. Okay, What looping is, is that in these check-ins, you're getting the exact same thing. And remember how I said with clients with complex trauma, that can be ambiguous. So before I'm intervening, I'm checking to make sure that they're stuck, stuck, rather than this metabolization happening very, very slowly. What looping is, is it's in my chest. It's in my chest, it's in my chest, and it's not changing. I just feel so guilty, I just feel so guilty, I just feel so guilty. Um, I feel nothing. Do you feel nothing only in certain parts of your body, or do you feel nothing everywhere? I feel nothing everywhere. I feel nothing everywhere. So looping is things aren't moving and shifting and changing. And in general, if things are moving and shifting and changing on any channel, we should assume processing is happening unless we're getting other indicators that it's becoming a goose chase. Looping is not, it's in my chest, it's in my right side, it's in my stomach, it's in my left side, it's back up into my chest. When these things move around in the body, they will often move around um, in a kind of circuit or a path. That is not what looping means. Looping is um, a sensation, is not moving, shifting, and changing as we notice it deeply. This probably won't be a big surprise, but when clients get stuck in reprocessing very, very often, they get stuck where they tend to get stuck outside of session as well. We feel a certain way. We try to solve that feeling that we have using the ways that are familiar to us, often culturally acceptable ways. Those ways tend to not be productive, thus the need for them to come see services. But we, we do this, right? We all kind of do this. When we get trauma activated, we tend to get stuck 
and then we interact with that thing in the exact same way. So I'll jokingly tell, you know, tell my clients, look, when I get activated, I'm going down the road, I'll back up, I'll just run right into it at the same angle, trying to solve that problem through the same unproductive ways over and over and over. And this is something um, very, very common with trauma, but is not common in many other aspects of our life. So for instance, let me give an example. Um, I had an office in the Cleveland area, and right off of Richmond Road, it was a little bit of an optical illusion because the road went straight and then it took a right turn, but it looked exactly like that road would take you to the parking lot behind the office building. The problem is, one day I took that road and it was a trap, right? It took me seven minutes to find my way all the way back to the place where I was trying to take that shortcut. And guess what? I did not have to do that again. I realized that pathway was unproductive. I didn't have to do that again. Clients and us with complex trauma, when we tend to get stuck, we tend to get stuck in a perspective. And we, we continue to just hit that stuck point from the same perspective. One of the things, one of the big points I'm making is that if that's true, what an interweave often does is it introduces a perspective change. And if many of the interweaves that you're used to are channel changes, right? So if you're stuck on the body channel, check the thought channel. If you're stuck on the thought channel, check the body channel. Um, those are perspective changes, right? So I'm just kind of getting us to think about this because if a client is stuck in a perspective, we can invite a perspective change. And the hope is the client can now bump into this obstacle, this issue, this difficulty at a different angle in the hopes of finding their way around it. What we don't want to do, and I don't know how you would do this in EMDR anyway, what we don't want to do is try to scoop the client up lift them over the obstacle and have them keep going down. Um, so again, if that's what's going on, okay, if that's what's going on, the client is stuck in a perspective. What that means is that the client is stuck somewhere. I'll say that again. If you're stuck in a perspective, what that means is that you're stuck somewhere. And what we're doing to intervene should match where the client is stuck. We don't just randomly throw something out. Now, to be kind to new EMDR therapists, it's going to be a while before you're going to be able to accurately kind of figure out where the client may be stuck and then how to help them get around that particular stuck point. So that will take a little while. But here's a metaphor. If in the morning, you go to start your car, you put your key in, and you just hear a click, right? Nothing starts. We don't get out and look at the tires, right? And the reason we don't look at the tires is there's no reason why the tires could possibly account for why the car won't start. That's a whole different set of symptoms and issues. So again, our intervention should match where the client is stuck. 
Um, and we don't want to just guess, right? And there will be clues if you know how to get at the information. So one of the things that I think many clients struggle with in EMDR is we, and this can be a place that they can get stuck, is they're not entirely sure what their role in this dance is. And when you're not sure what your role is in something, you may try to do everything that you can think of doing. You're going to follow your intuition and you're going to, you're going to do lots of different things. Or similar to that, one of the things you may do is if you aren't very clear about what you're supposed to do in this dance, um, what you may do is what you're used to doing and you default to the same ruminative processes that that um that have always kind of kept you stuck. So I like to educate my clients in what exactly I'm asking them to do. And we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but I describe EMDR as having three components. We activate, we notice, and left-right stimulation. So I'm letting my clients know the core of what I'm asking you to do is notice. Notice, notice, notice. The, perp the main purpose of the memory channel is that that's the content we're going to digest, but its main purpose is to generate right now present distress for us to notice, particularly in the first two-thirds of a session, typically. So activate enough to cause distress notice what comes, right? And I'm giving clients very, very clear guidance. We're going to talk about this in a minute, about what noticing means. So if you are doing anything else, right? I, well, the core of what I'm asking you to do is notice what is coming to you. And if you don't know what that means, notice what stinks right here, right now in your body, when you interact with this difficult memory or parts of this difficult memory. Okay. If you're doing anything else, you're probably stirring something into the brownie batter of EMDR that does not need to go. So if you're trying to figure something out, right? If you're trying to make sense of something, trying to make sense of something in the first parts of an EMDR session is just going to result in you being on the side of the highway. It's very unlikely to be moving you down the highway in, a, in the direction of your goals if you're a client with complex trauma. So what I'm asking you to do is activate and notice that distress. If you're doing anything else, you may be stirring corn into your brownie batter. And the brownie batter is really good. It's really good. We don't need to improve it with things. Okay. So what I'm at the core of this, what I'm asking you to do is notice. Okay. A lot of, a lot of people, including Shapiro, spend a lot of time talking about blocking beliefs and blocking beliefs are just what that, just what it sounds like they are. They are potentially blocks. What I'm hoping that you're going to be able to do, though, <clears throat> because I want to talk about blocks in reprocessing, what I'm hoping you're going to be able to do is pick up on these in your phase two and start to address them there. Start the process of, of addressing these, these blocking beliefs, because 
in a lot of ways, <clears throat> phase one and phase two, but phase two particularly, is the canary in the coal mine for blocking beliefs. If a client cannot safely experience their emotions, you should be able to pick up on that in phase two, right? I'm hoping that you will. I'm hoping that you'll be doing a, a detailed enough um, and you'll be listening enough to the client to pick up on that um, in phase two. Or for instance, if the client is absolutely fixated on doing things perfectly, you're likely to pick up on that in phases one and two. And we want to start to scrutinize that. In short, the way I think about a blocking belief is any kind of protective belief about the self that interferes with one of the core things I'm asking you to do in EMDR therapy. So almost any negative cognition can be a blocking belief if it presents at a particular angle and makes it really difficult for you to do what I'm asking you to do in EMDR therapy. So if we, again, if we think about EMDR therapy as activate, noticing, and noticing being the bright yellow line in the center of the EMDR road, activate, noticing, left-right stimulation. Why might I can't show my emotions be a difficulty? Because you're going to really struggle to activate. Why might perfectionism, I have to be perfect, I have to, I can't mess up. Why might that be a blocking belief? Um, and be particularly pro problematic in EMDR because it's going to be something that you're running and it's going to be um, something that can get you and distract you away from one of the core things I'm asking you to do. Perfectionism is going to have you try to do your job and mine, right? So it's going to be, um, what if I'm not doing this right? What does it mean that I'm not doing this right? Um, is this working? Again, many of these things are my tasks as the therapist. So blocking beliefs can take offline um, some, of the, some of the things that we really, really need to be online in EMDR therapy. So when a client has a blocking belief, we may need to start to scrutinize that with language. And we'll talk elsewhere about how to do that. And these often do need to be some of the initial targets that we tackle when um, particularly when they're not going to let you notice because you're not you're not allowed. You're not allowed or parts of you aren't allowing you to activate. Another thing just to keep in mind from the adaptive information processing model. And again, you you've, will hear me say this over and over and over. At the core of the AIP model, the difficult stuff, oh, sorry, difficult stuff down here must connect to existing adaptive information. So this is what's happening in EMDR. The difficult stuff, whatever it is, the pathway of healing in EMDR facilitated by the A-phase protocol is that that difficult stuff will connect to existing right now information, okay? So if a client is having real difficulties right out of the bat, you might want to consider, I'm not saying this is the case, I'm inviting you to consider, is the client trying to land a fish bigger than their boat? Okay, have we simply hooked on 
to too big of a target too soon? It's a good question. Um, and you should consider it and the client should consider it, right? If we were looking for something this big and we end up, ended up grabbing something the size of Jupiter, um, yeah, that may be too big. That may be too big of a target too soon. In that case, if the client has grabbed onto something too big too soon, we can always container it with the intention of coming back to it. But if we're doing that, my suggestion is that we don't come back to it immediately. My suggestion is we go work elsewhere that may be a little bit more tolerable and come back when the client has built a little bit more adaptive information. If on the sixth week of therapy with this client, sixth session, um, well, first target turns out to be too big, very rarely am I going to return to that target on the seventh session unless the client really wants to. Um, because again, what adaptive information would the client have been able to gain, right? Particularly if we're leaving phase four, right? And going to phase seven closure without any real um, reprocessing having happened. So if we're abandoning, abandoning this target for now, just for, for being too big, too big for right now, I'm going to let it sit in the container and the, until the client has built more adaptive information. One of the biggest categories of targets are attachment wounds. And I want to talk a little bit about why attachment wounds are about everything. And if you're a therapist who has come from um, a context where you know what I'm talking about here, then I don't need to tell you. I don't need to convince you. Attachment wounds are about everything. They're about connection. They're about love. They're about lovability. They're about belonging. They're about identity. They're about what happens when you're born into this world to people that don't know how to love right or don't know how to do that consistently enough. So attachment wounds, in a lot of ways, is what's wrong with many of us, right? So, so when a client is working and maybe you started with a memory that was an event, right? Good for you. Events make really good initial targets because events have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Attachment wounds, though, are about everything. They don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Their attachment wounds are kind of a picture of ourselves in the world, and it's not a pretty picture. So what happens often when clients drill into an attachment wound is it's almost like they're sinking into quicksand. And very often what they're doing is they're drilling into the big existential loneliness of childhood. That is not a pleasant feeling because if you're born into this world and you can't get your needs met, right? If you, I mean, just that. If you're born into this world and the people who are supposed to meet your needs can't do it and they often will blame you for having those needs. If that's the reality that you're born into, almost everything after that is going to be sideshows. So in a lot of ways, attachment wounds, which you can easily get at with event trauma, right, in childhood, because again, you know, in families, you may have been blamed for the event. You may have been 
told that event didn't happen, right? Because the parents didn't want to cause a disruption in the family. So attachment wounds are the whales of memory with many, many clients with complex trauma. And when they hook on to them, the danger is that they're still attached to the whale when the session ends. So very, very often, clients that come back to tell you, I had a really difficult time after last session. It was three, four, five days when I just wasn't right. Very, very often, that is the long-term resonance of an attachment wound. And when they're stuck in an attachment wound, I highly recommend that you develop an attachment figure resource. So when the right now selves aren't healthy enough to connect with and metabolize that trauma, we need a substitute that can go in, bring comfort and information to the child state in that memory, and then just put out the embers, put out many of those embers in that developmental era. Okay, so I think attachment figure resources are one of the most important things I know. It has made a night and day difference in helping my clients with attachment wounding facilitate deep, lasting, and healing recovery. Attachment wounds are one of the um, deepest, most profound wounds we have, but attachment resources are one of the few resources that I know that is in and of itself potentially healing. There there are whole episodes in which I explore this. Attachment figure resources, which the way I conceptualize it, are imaginary resources. They are a very good way to do an expedited version of this parts work you keep hearing everyone talking about. So again, attachment resources are parts work. And in a lot of ways, what it's doing, right, is if... If the most adult parts, the most grown-up parts, hate and resent that kid for what happened to it, I'm not going to tell you EMDR won't work, but what I will tell you is you can't connect a lie to a lie, right? It's okay if that kid believes it's dispositionally bad, but if the most grown-up adult parts are confused about whether or not kids are born lovable, or not, or whether they deserve to get their needs met or not, um, you may need to do some enhanced resourcing. Attachment resources, and I'll put my script um, in the comments below, attachment resources um, can be real game changers so that after a few difficult sessions, these attachment wounds often will start to clear with the same ease as event trauma. Another helpful lens, and and really just like blocking beliefs really do connect to the core elements of EMDR therapy, of activation, noticing, left-right stimulation. If we think about that's what EMDR is at its core, activation, noticing, left-right stimulation. Let's treat each of these things separately and explore the kind of problems that may come. Not all activation is the same. We need activation. We need memory content to come in, but we need it to come at a digestible rate. And remember with clients with complex trauma, 
their digestible rate is very, very slow. Their metabolism is very, very slow because typically we're connecting very big stuff with very, very small chunks of adaptive information. So yes, we need activation. Activation is a key part in virtually every transformational trauma therapy to some degree. We need activation to come. We need it to come in tolerable ways. We need that activation to come in a way that is inside the client's window of tolerance, right? I'm going to have another podcast episode where we talk about really just where EMDR has to happen with complex trauma, you know, and really it's going to feel like it's going to happen on a place the size of a postage stamp, right? Because we have to activate, but not overactivate. And the noticing that clients need to do has to be within their window of tolerance and they have to be present, you know, in order to do it. So there's an enormous amount of stuff and complications that may come just from the activation component alone. If the client is struggling with activation, I'm wondering if they're overactivating, right? Are they playing too much memory too quickly? And we'll talk about we'll talk about this as well. It's not just is the memory content coming in too quickly and with an intensity, right? Because if the memory content comes in like a tsunami, that tsunami has to be in your window of tolerance. And if you're bringing distress in that's beyond your capacity to tolerate and notice, there's really nowhere for it to go but to bump you out of your window of tolerance. So again, it's a catch-22. Clients with complex trauma, especially with their bigger memories, distress is likely to come in very big ways, and it's likely to bump them out of their window of tolerance if we allow that and promote that. Another thing, another thing that may happen, and this is especially common among clients with complex trauma, and you should just be aware of it. When clients with complex trauma activate a particular individual memory, so suppose we've decided, which is, which is consistent with Shapiro's guidance, we're going to start with a very small memory. Right, so we start with a very small memory. However, this memory that we've started with brings body sensations that are very familiar. Right? You feel like you did when you were a kid in that childhood, right? And then those body sensations will become a magnet for memory one, memory two, memory three. That the body sensations, and again, we need body sensations. Remember, Shapiro says the distressed clients notice. Is the trauma being metabolized? We need activation. We need distress to come. But what I'm telling you is that with complex clients, everything's going to want to come. And if you let it, they're going to go metaphorically straight off the side of the cliff, right? Not that they're going to have this huge, terrible interaction, but basically... They're going to wreck the car in this EMDR in, in, in this EMDR session, and we may not be able to salvage it. It may not be able to be drivable <clears throat> in the rest of the session. Clients, when they activate a particular piece of memory content, are going to feel a certain way, and a whole neighborhood of memory may light up. That is common. Expect it. 
and let clients know that's not our goal. So if you have a whole lot of memory coming that is related to this, but you're struggling to digest and metabolize the memory that we started with, we can always just route that content to a larger container and we can get to it at another time. Activation <clears throat> is essential. Overactivation is a problem. Other podcasts, the videotape approach, are going to talk about ways to help manage overactivation by putting a little gate on the memory channel so that the therapist has a little bit of uh, a little bit of a capacity to assist the client in letting memory content come in at a, at a more digestible rate. Long story short, clients with complex trauma are likely to overactivate at some point. When that happens, that's not failure. When that happens, you now have information about this client's nervous system and potentially about a ten their tendency um, when they get activated to allow or promote or just the fact that everything's going to want to come. So a ton more we can say about activation. Let's switch to noticing. Noticing, I think, is the bright yellow line in the center of the EMDR road. Another way we think about it is maybe, maybe noticing is the big front wheel on the tricycle. So these are questions I'm asking myself. If the client is activating, but yet things don't seem to be moving and shifting and changing, this is what I'm asking myself. Is the client noticing? Does the client, uh, perhaps a more fundamental question, is does the client know how to notice? I think in a lot of ways Shapiro assumed that clients know what the heck you mean by noticing. I educate my clients about noticing, particularly body sensations. I'm saying we're going to notice these, these sensations and we're doing this in phase two, right? We're practicing this in phase two around some pleasant stuff as well. So I want you to notice sensations like you're about to sketch it. And if you've ever taken a drawing class, you know what I'm talking about. Because the instructor probably said something like, you can't really notice it. You can't really capture it until you see it clearly. You can't replicate it, for instance, until you can see it clearly. I want to be very, very clear about what noticing means. What's the shape of it, right? What's the inside of it feel like? Is it hot? Is it cool? Does it have a texture? Is it heavy? Does it have an impulse? Does it want to do something? We Again, we want to notice it like we're about to sketch it. And noticing in EMDR is a very, very active verb. It's different. Noticing is different than being aware of. And again, the, the, the description that I often use is, I'll encourage you to think about a time in the last few months when you may have been very angry. You're really upset about something. And my hunch is that even at that time you were angry, there was a part of you that was aware, I'm really angry. I'm really pissed off right now, right? But it's also likely that you didn't realize that you had a tightness in your jaw or that your neck muscles were tight or that these muscles were particularly tight or that you had what felt like a tight fist. That's the difference between being aware of 
and noticing deeply. And EMDR is about noticing deeply. In a very fundamental way, what we're doing in EMDR is we're giving your nervous system an opportunity to experience and process what you were too shut down or too overwhelmed or didn't have the information necessary to process at the time. I hope that clarifies the difference between being aware of and noticing. Being aware of is something that we may do in the same space as rumination. It's, it's abstracted. It's up here. It's not concrete and grounded in this moment in this body. Noticing is that bright yellow line in the center of the road. If the client isn't noticing, there's no telling um, where they may end up. Another very important thing that I'm asking myself, particularly when we get to guilt, shame, blame, responsibility, one of the things I'm asking myself is, is what the client's noticing from the memory that we started with, or are they trying to figure out something existential? It's a really good question because our goal is to digest the memory. Our goal, our target in EMDR therapy is almost always a memory. So we're digesting this memory one little piece at a time. And part of what I want to know is, are you noticing what comes up when you play that memory? Are you trying to figure out something? Why was I born to these people? Why does my mom not know how to love right? I just have to figure out how to show her how bad she hurt me so that she can stop doing it. I need to hurry up and figure out how to forgive her. All of these things are goose chases in EMDR therapy. Um, we want to encourage clients not to try to figure out existential stuff when all I'm asking you to do is notice what's coming. Is the distress the client's experiencing even from the memory or from some sideshow? And you can spend all summer in sideshows. So one of the things we may do is we may say, if you can activate a piece of that memory, notice what comes up while your brain gets a left-right stimulation, that memory might resolve. And when that memory resolves, very often the really big existential questions that we have about it will often lose their urgency. The existential questions can get a lot better when we heal, but in order to heal in EMDR therapy, we may need to let go of the agenda of trying to spend a good chunk of the session figuring things out. One of the things I tell my clients is that there's really nothing to figure out today. There's nothing to figure out today. When healing comes, it's going to come to you. And it's going to come as a product of noticing. So noticing is what's moving us down the highway. Okay? So whatever you need to heal may be a little bitty tiny green sign two miles away. And we're going to notice our way, notice our way, notice our way to it. And then when we get there, it's going to be a 24-foot across sign. It's going to be this huge green sign that's going to have just what we need on it for us to heal. It's going to come, though, as a byproduct of noticing. And the point in this metaphor is you didn't create that sign. You noticed your way to it. 
and you noticed your way to it in the present. A lot of the time, back to the kind of tricycle of activation, noticing left-right stimulation, it's always a possibility that switching the bilateral may be helpful. Um, my particular bias with clients with complex trauma is if the bilateral that they're doing is fast enough and it's sustainable, um, that's often the last thing I'm changing. I know a lot of people, and Shapiro herself, you know, when their problems switch the method of bilateral, a lot of times what we're doing, I think, when we're switching the, the method of stimulation is we may be introducing a subtle perspective change by changing the bilateral rather than one form of stimulation being so much better for the client than the other or that reprocessing simply isn't happening for this client through tactile but it does through visual it may be that visuals are helping the client manage the rumination that may come up or it may be that the tactile is helping the client manage the rumination that had been coming up my take is that clients need to get a left-right stimulation. We need to help them promote the left-right stimulation that helps them stay the most present. I really do believe of the many active ingredients in the left-right stimulation, one of the most active ingredients is here, 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 here. A lot of what the purpose of that left-right stimulation is, other than opening connections between different parts of the brain, is helping to promote presence. And you know what else helps open connections between different parts of the brain? Being very, very present. You can try switching the bilateral stimulation. It's an important wheel in this triangle, and it may be helpful. Many, many of us get stuck in cultural stuff, right? I mean, a ton of trauma is cultural trauma. Um, it is possible that an asteroid might fall on you or fall onto your house. <clears throat> and while that may be truly completely random, the meanings and interpretations of that are going to be very, very, very culturally saturated. In a lot of ways, where clients often get stuck are in the most culturally saturated emotions of guilt, shame, blame, and responsibility. <clears throat> the moment guilt, shame, blame, responsibility is coming, that does not mean a client is stuck. The client isn't stuck in guilt, shame, blame, responsibility until they're stuck in it, until they're doing this with it, right? Boom, 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 right there. It's not moving and shifting and changing. And I distinguish between two broad types of guilt, shame, blame, responsibility. Those that are kind of developmentally appropriate and those that are not appropriate. So let me give an example. An appropriate type of guilt, shame, blame, responsibility might be, you know, I'm 50 years old, I got drunk, I punched my friend in the nose and I broke his nose. Okay, guess what? I have guilt about that, okay? In EMDR, the pathway through that is to notice that guilt. 
notice, feel that guilt moving through my body, and the cognitions that are going to unlock it are not, I did the best I could, right? They're not, I didn't do anything wrong. The cognitions that are going to unlock that are going to be the ones that come from context. They're going to be the ones that come from other forms of learning that we get from context. The cognitions that are going to unlock this stuff are going to be things like, I can support my recovery, right? I can make better decisions. I can mend my relationships. So um, one of the questions related to guilt, shame, blame, responsibility that I'm first considering is, is this guilt, shame, blame, responsibility developed? developmentally appropriate. And if you were five and he was 50, that guilt, shame, blame responsibility is not yours. It's going to feel like it is yours, but it is, it is not yours. When clients are stuck and they're going to get stuck in guilt, shame, blame responsibility, often we'll have, we'll have little bitty hints of that in phase three. So I know the client is about to do really good work when in phase three, they say something like, well, I know it's not my fault, right? I know it's not my fault, but when I think about that memory, I just feel so guilty. What that lets me know is we have difficult content and I know that there's at least some information that's going to create a landing place. I know that's not my fault, meaning I know what I'm supposed to believe, right? I know that kids are not responsible for what grownups do to them. I just don't think that. And now that's, or I don't feel that, that's what EMDR is. Difficult stuff connecting to existing adaptive information, even sometimes if the adaptive information related to you is very, very tentative. If it is there globally, that can be helpful. There are tons and tons and tons of things in Shapiro's chapter on dealing with guilt, shame, blame, responsibility that are very, very helpful. So look at the chapter on dealing with blocks and ab reactions. Shapiro is doing perspective taking over and over and over in her interweaves when a client is stuck in guilt, shame, blame, responsibility, particularly related to childhood sexual abuse. The first interweave she may do is say, can you notice that you're blaming yourself for something that someone did to you? And just noticing that, going with that, not even like giving an opportunity of too much, you know, for too much talking about it. Again, I believe this is Parnell may say, can you show me with your hand how tall you were when you were five? Can you show me with your hand how tall he was when you were five? Notice that, right? So again, what Shapiro often talks about is when, when the, you know, there's the, the information is here, but it's just not connecting. Sometimes we have to pull that adaptive information a little bit closer. Another way to say it is sometimes we need to invite a perspective change. And what a perspective change, even in the case of the client is doing this related to guilt, shame, blame, responsibility, sometimes a perspective change is just come over here and look at it from where I see it, right? That's what that, can you see that you're blaming yourself for something that someone did to you? <clears throat> There's so many things that, that we can say about dealing with guilt, shame, blame, responsibility. I'll have other episodes about it as well. But guilt, shame, blame, responsibility invite perspective changes. They just do.
One of the most kind of direct perspective changes that I've ever heard is from Shapiro herself, who is stay out of the way, stay out of the way, stay out of the way. One of Shapiro's interweaves <clears throat> with a client stuck in guilt, shame, blame, responsibility for childhood sexual abuse is imagine this happened to your daughter and she's blaming herself. What do you tell her? Notice that. <laughs> right? That <clears throat> when I read that, that seemed like a steel rail across electrified train tracks. When a client is stuck, they're legitimately stuck in guilt, shame, blame, responsibility. We need to introduce a perspective change in the hopes that they're hitting that target at a different angle and they can bounce around it. And the moment they bounce around it, we get out of the way and follow them. These are pretty common places where clients may get stuck. One of the suggestions that I'm going to make in, in another podcast is, is I'm not entirely sure. Actually, no, let's scratch that. I'm really sure that standard protocol is not very parts friendly. Um, I'm not entirely sure it was on Shapiro's radar. And I'm not talking about parts in the sense of DID, although it may, we, we, it may be in that case. One of the questions I'm going to ask you if you're working with a system, and by the way, you're almost always working with a system of parts, is how is your relationship with your client, right? We're an important guide on this client's journey. We're almost like a co-navigator here. The relationship is a key component and it's going to be, and what is effective in EMDR therapy. The relationship is a key component in many, many therapies. So I'm just going to invite this question. Um, how's your relationship with your client's parts? Um, how is your relationship with your client's parts? And if you're not sure what I mean by that, what I'm going to ask is, did you ask consent to work on this memory? and attempt to address concerns, listen to a concerned part when that part had an agenda different than yours. If you didn't, if you're working with a system and you're just like, let's work on this memory, you never even considered exploring if every part is okay with working on this memory, parts will object using any way that they can, <clears throat> and this may show up in ways that look like complications or resistance. And if you don't engage parts and you're not the therapist <clears throat> that is comfortable working with clients' parts, or at least you're not even comfortable acknowledging that clients may have parts of themselves and different parts may be carrying different parts of this trauma in different ways, <clears throat> then I promise you their parts are already aware of you and are aware of this quality in you. I want to leave by just saying, you know, you don't have to get, you know, full in internal family systems trained. You don't have to, you know, be an expert in developmental needs meeting strategy. You don't have to be an expert in attachment figures. You do not have to have, um, have in your toolbox every single one of the really cool Robin Shapiro um, parts tools. But what I'm going to say is that working with a system is always easier than pretending that you're not working with a system. Working with a system is easier than going forward pretending that you're not. 
So get consent, get consent from parts. It doesn't take much. It's just a few, often it may just be a few questions here and there. It may also be exploring this before we do EMDR. It may be you creating the space for the client to educate you about the, how aware they are of their parts and how their parts exist to protect them and to get a sense of, of who's in general holding what and who does what in which ways to help protect and support the system. This is a little bit of, um, this is a little bit of information. It's been a little bit of uh, context about where things may go wrong, where things may get complicated in EMDR reprocessing. Um, I'm going to try to develop more content for each of these elements. But in the time being, let me know what you're most curious about. Let me know what in this kind of resonated with you and what doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So thank you for um, going on this, this pretty long journey with me. Again, this is the most expedited I know, <laughs> expedited way I know how to cover this this type of uh, this type of content, and I feel in a lot of ways like I didn't really do any individual piece of this service, but um, but hopefully this is helpful in approaching clients with complex trauma when their reprocessing does not go like it went in practicum in your training. So thank you. Be in touch and, uh, and let me know how it can be helpful. Thank you.